0: How many of you have ever had a coach? Either you were on a sports team or you had a personal trainer, All right, some of you? What do the best coaches do? They tell you what you need to do and they assure you that you can do it. They give you first instruction, teaching and training. And second, they give you encouragement or motivation. Now hopefully that's normally positive motivation, but I remember when I was in uh, basketball doing, running lots of eight trips whenever we, uh, didn't do what the coach wanted us to do or having to run laps one time because coach didn't appreciate my joke or something. But hopefully it's it's normally positive motivation to be the best you possibly can be, to uh, fulfill your potential. Remember the, the famous locker room speech, right? Before the game or maybe at halftime, your coach would give a little speech to let you know what you needed to do. But he or she would also try to inspire you, to motivate you, to do what you know you needed to do. Even if you've never played sports, I'm sure most of you have seen a sports movie, right? So remember that scene where uh, the team is losing or the team's down and it's at halftime, they're discouraged and the coach needs to explain what's going wrong and how to overcome it. He or she needs to inspire the team to do their best. Well, maybe you've never had that experience and maybe you're you're not really into sports movies. I'm sure you've had a teacher or a mentor or a boss or a family member who saw things in you that you didn't even see in yourself and helped give you the confidence to do something you never thought you could do. This is what the Apostle John is doing in today's passage. I encourage you to turn to 1 John chapter 2. Uh, If you're using any of the Bibles there provided in the seats, that's on page 707. Seven zero seven. Otherwise, if you take a Bible or open up your Bible app, you go to the last book of the Bible, Revelation, you flip a few short books to the left from there, you'll get to the little epistle of 1 John. So turn to 1 John chapter 2. Uh, While we're turning there, just let me uh, say that we're continuing our series through 1 John that we're calling Basics for Believers. John is giving us basic truths about the Christian life. And he's been stressing up to this point the importance of truth and light and love in the Christian walk. In our passage today, John uh, takes a break to write a little poem of encouragement to encourage us to continue in our Christian life, to keep growing in our faith. So join with me in reading there in 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know Him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the Word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. title of my message today is You've Got This. Well, before we... Uh, look at our three main points and, and pull out some, some takeaways here. Let's unpack this passage a little bit. Let's look at some of the structure and key facts going on here. First, notice the six repetitions of that phrase, of uh, forms of I write. It's actually one word in the Greek. It's a verb. It means to write. A uh, verb is just an action word. Um, And those of you who are Greek uh, geeks or entomologists, it's the word grapho. So you can think of all the different words in the English language that had graph in them, meaning to write. And he uses a form of this verb six different times. Repetition is often used for emphasis. John is assuring his audience that what he is saying is true. Think of it as he's saying, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, this is the truth. Well, if you have another English translation there besides the ESV, you also might see that there's two different tenses here. And that's uh, true in the original language. You see the first three uh, verbs are present tense, or literally, I am writing. Whereas the last three verbs are past tense, or I have written. Now, the best way to understand this difference is just simply that John is saying that this is his consistent message. It hasn't changed. It's like he's saying, I'm telling you, and I have been telling you. Second, notice the three or four different audiences. There's three or four different groups of people that John is writing to here. So we see three different English words here. We see children, we see young men, and we see fathers. Now, first, let's have a side note about gender here. This isn't just men, okay? It should be understood to include women. Now, in ancient times and until very recently, it was just understood grammatically that using Male pronouns and nouns was just understood in a very generic sense until we became a lot more sensitive about pronouns very recently. Um, But we know from other sources in Scripture, from Titus chapter 2, for example, that older, experienced Christian women are supposed to act like mothers or mentors to younger Christian women. So uh, Christian women have the same responsibility to do do Christian growth and to help other generations of Christians. Uh, So these truths apply as equally to women as they do to men. Another side note is to not confuse this with literal age groups. So he's not uh, necessarily talking about age groups or stages of life. But if you came to Christ at an early age, it makes sense that there would be some overlap here, right? So if you came to Christ early on so, and you're consistently growing in Christ, those, those age groups might track with the spiritual groups here. But it doesn't guarantee, one doesn't guarantee the other. Time alone doesn't guarantee spiritual growth. Although spiritual growth, does take time. Well, I have a chart for you. Kyle isn't the only one who can speak through the love language of charts, so here you go. Uh, So on the left-hand side here, you see the the biblical words used, and you'll notice I have two different phrases for children. That's because in, in the Greek, in the original Greek, there's two different words for children here. Little children, children, young men, and fathers. And so there's a couple different ways you could classify these. You have three groups where you could say the references to children, those are new Christians or baby believers. And then, young men are stronger Christians, and fathers are the most experienced Christians. Another way you could look at it as three groups is that uh, little children, and children just refers to all Christians. It's common for John to refer to little children as all Christians. And then, young men, again, are stronger Christians, and fathers are experienced Christians. But uh, another way to look at this, is the way John MacArthur interprets it, and I think it has a lot of merit is to use that, that, see that first phrase, little children, as John talking to all Christians. Because he uses that same word earlier and throughout this, this epistle to refer to all Christians, the people he is writing to. And then that, that other word, children, is actually a different word. And John MacArthur says that it has more the connotation of someone who's dependent, a young child that we would think of. So maybe that's baby Christians, people who are new in the faith. And then again, you have young men as stronger Christians, And then fathers as experienced Christians. So, commentators agree that these are levels of spiritual maturity or stages of Christian growth. They just disagree about which stage is which and which of these refer to all Christians. And honestly, I don't think it matters. Uh, All of these things apply to all Christians, although sometimes to varying degrees. For example, all Christians, as we'll see, have forgiveness of sins. And let's not forget that John likes double and triple meanings, so it's entirely possible that he means all of these options. The bottom line is that certain things are true for all Christians, and certain things take time and effort to experience fully. Well, finally, as we're unpacking this text, notice the location of this passage in the greater context of the letter of 1 John. John has been telling his readers that they need to be walking in love, and that they need to be walking in the light, And Lord willing, in our next sermon, in the next passage we look at, uh, we're going to see John is telling us not to love certain things that we naturally want to love. A lot of difficult, uh, challenging things that he's telling us to do here. So here in this passage, John takes a break and he writes basically an inspirational poem to first assure us of what we have in Christ and second to motivate us to keep growing in our Christian life. So what's so encouraging about this passage? What truth is John sharing with us that should encourage us? Well, we're gonna look at three things. Three things that you have in Christ if you're a Christian. And non-Christian, these are things that you can have if you become a Christian. So Christian, these are things that should assure you that you can keep going, that you can grow spiritually. And non-Christians, these are things that you're missing out on by not becoming a Christian. So here's our three simple points. We have forgiveness of sins, we have strength to overcome, and we have a relationship with God. First, let's look at forgiveness of sins. Look at verse 12 there. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Do you realize that forgiveness of sins is your greatest need? Despite what you might be going through in your relationships, at work, with your health, or even your mental state, as important as those things are, our greatest fundamental need is to be forgiven of our sins. Remember Kyle's recent message from from Luke about the paralyzed man? His friends brought him to Jesus and even let him down through a roof so that Jesus could heal him of his paralysis. Well, what did Jesus do? He looked at him and he said, your sins... Are forgiven and to prove that he had the power to forgive those sins he also said arise take up your bed and walk and he did this is this man's greatest need wasn't his paralysis it wasn't healing as his greatest need his greatest need was for forgiveness you see God is holy and he cannot tolerate sin and sin separates us from a holy God and while we aren't all as evil as we could be We have all fallen short of that standard that God has set for us, and we deserve to be punished eternally by a good and just God. So we need forgiveness of sins. But do you also realize that you can have confidence that those sins have been forgiven? Notice the assurance in that phrase there in verse 12, are forgiven, not might be forgiven or could be forgiven, but are forgiven. We might say have been forgiven. John is talking to people who can know they have been forgiven. And later on in this book, in chapter 5, John's going to assure us that we can know that we have eternal life. Does that sound proud or arrogant to you? How can anyone know that? Isn't that presumptuous? I like what Martin Lloyd-Jones says when he was, said when he was preaching about this passage. He says, "'It is no mark of saintliness to be uncertain that your sins are forgiven.'" It is to deny and doubt the word of God. To deny that we can have assurance of forgiveness is not humility. It's actually an insult to God. You're basically saying that Christ's death on the cross wasn't enough that you can have assurance of forgiveness. And it's also a sign of unbelief. You're, you're calling God a liar basically. He says in his word that you can have forgiveness and you can have assurance of that forgiveness. So you're really calling God a liar if you say that you can't know that your sins are forgiven. Now, I think it'll be helpful for us to ask two questions about forgiveness. How and why? How can our sins be forgiven, and why have they been forgiven? First, the how. Well, friends, this is basically the gospel. This is the good news. This is why Jesus had to die on the cross. Because God is holy and cannot leave the guilty unpunished, a substitute had to die in the place of sinners. Jesus is that substitute. He lived a perfect life, and he died in the place of sinners, like you and me but this doesn't automatically benefit us we must turn from our sins and basically surrender our right to do what's wrong and surrender our right to live independently of God and believe in rely upon what Jesus has done for us this is what repentance and faith is faith in Christ is the only way our sins can be forgiven not by good works not by trying to be a nicer person only through faith in Christ well what's the why The short answer is the glory of God. And that's what for his name's sake means here in this this passage. If you study this out in scriptures, you'll find that this is really God's greatest motive in all that he does, is that his glory would be known. Because it's the greatest good in all the universe. God is worthy of glory for his creation, for his power, for his perfect uh, nature. And he wins even more glory for himself by saving sinners from their sins. This is the truth, God's glory through redemption, that you will find from Genesis to Revelation. God gets glory through the gospel. And in the book of Revelation, as we sang just moments ago, we will be singing, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain for all eternity. And this gospel truth is something that even blows the mind of the angels, Peter says. Christian, be encouraged that regardless of your level of spiritual growth, your sins have been forgiven. Next, you have strength to overcome. Look at verses 13 and 14. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. And I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. This contrast between young men and fathers reminds me of one of the Proverbs of Solomon. You remember Proverbs 20:29: 20, The glory of young men is their strength, but the splendor of old men is their gray hair. What he's saying here is that young people, uh, young men are known for their strength and their agility and their endurance, but older people are or at least should be known for their dignity and their experience and their wisdom. Well, overcome, what's that mean? That means to conquer or to defeat. I think of a gladiator defeating his opponent in the the arena. Well, who's the evil one? Well, this is Satan, the great enemy of God. Even though he's not anywhere near being the equal of God, he is the great opponent of God. Well, there's at least three ways that we overcome in this passage. First, we defeat Satan. The devil wants you to continue to reject God and spend an eternity in hell like he will. That's his plan. He knows that he can't win ultimately, but he hates God so much and out of spite, he just wants to defeat as many souls as possible. But if you trust Christ as your savior, Satan is decisively defeated in that goal. It reminds me of uh, years ago, I read uh, Winston Churchill's memoirs of the Second World War. And in that that book, at one point, he talks about Pearl Harbor and how uh, after Pearl Harbor, Uh, The United States declared war on Japan and then eventually Germany and and Italy, the other Axis powers, declared war on the United States and the United States declared war on them. And he said that that first night after he knew that the United States was going to get involved in World War II, he said he slept as he had never slept before. Because he knew while it was going to be difficult, he knew that eventually the Allies would win and Britain would survive. Jesus Christ has won that decisive victory and he calls us To just live in light of that victory. So second, uh, on a more practical level, we can resist temptation. On an ongoing basis, we can have greater and greater victory over temptation to sin. And some of you guys can give great testimony to the victory over sin through the power of God in your life. Third, we can become stronger in the truth. And this is probably one of the primary meetings here. As we become stronger in our Christian growth, we can better spot false teaching. Part of Christian growth is becoming what the Bible calls more discerning. Being able to tell good from bad, truth from lies. Well, where does this strength, this strength to overcome, come from? Look at verse 14, the word of God. This is the key to Christian growth, knowledge of the scriptures. But it's not just head knowledge. Uh, As important as as a a mental knowledge of the Scriptures is, it's not sufficient. It's also uh, internalizing the Bible. That's what it means by abiding in you. Literally, that means the Word of God is living inside you. It's changing you from the inside out. And this is also what Paul talks about when he says that we should have transformed minds. We should have minds that have been transformed by the regular exposure to the Word of God. So studying, thinking about, and internalizing the Bible is what nourishes us and allows us to grow. Like the city, silly little kid song uh, I teach the kids sometimes, read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow, grow, grow. Simple truth, but you know it, it, it's true. Uh, reading and feasting on the Bible is what changes our whole worldview. John MacArthur put it well in his commentary on this passage. He says, the only way believers can progress on the continuum of spiritual growth from children to young men to fathers is through the life-giving, life-transforming application of the Word of God to their lives. We have strength to overcome the plan of the devil, strength to come overcome sin in our daily lives, and strength to recognize and refute false teaching. Finally, we have a relationship with God. Uh, notice again verses 13 and 14. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I am, and then twice he says some form of, I am writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. Well, knowledge involves facts, right? Knowing things about God. But it primar- this primarily has the idea of knowing God personally and intimately. Having a relationship with God. Knowing, the idea of knowing throughout the Bible has to To do with knowing someone intimately, not just knowing something about them, not just being acquainted with them, but really knowing them on a deep level. In fact, sometimes knowing is is used as a euphemism for marital intimacy. Remember, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived? So it's an intimate friendship, it's an intimate relationship. Well, what does this relationship look like in our lives? Well, first, we know God as our Heavenly Father. And it makes sense that children would know their fathers, right? When we first become children in the faith, we primarily know God simply as our Father. The Bible says that through the power of the Holy Spirit living within us, we cry within ourselves, Abba, Father, which is a term of endearment and one of dependence. Like the Chris Tomlin song says, "We we now know God as our good, good Father. Now some of us have had bad experiences with our earthly father. And none of us have had a perfect earthly father in this life. But once we become Christians, we can know God as our perfectly strong, protecting, providing, loving, nurturing, and all knowing Father. Now, hopefully, we never uh, stop looking at God as our Father, but as we grow spiritually, our knowledge of God should grow. So, first, we know Him as our Father, but secondly, we know Him as him who is from the beginning. I think there's some poetic irony here when John says that fathers in the faith know him who is from the beginning. As we become older and wiser in our faith, we also come to know God as the eternal God with a perfect eternal plan. All Christians have come to know God to some extent, but our lives should be a process of continually getting to know God more and more. Our relationship with God should progress. This should honestly be our primary motive in studying God's word. It's not just to have more knowledge, and it's not even uh, just to grow stronger spiritually, but to know God. Do you know God? I have two simple applications for us today. First application, have your sins been forgiven? I'm not asking if your sins aren't that bad compared to somebody else. I'm asking you if the sins that you have committed, and the Bible is clear that we all have sinned, have those been forgiven? If you haven't trusted in Christ alone, your sins are not forgiven, and you have an eternity of punishment in store for you unless you repent and believe. If you're not a Christian, I hope this is a wake-up call to you. Trust Christ today. If you're here and you want uh, some help understanding what what it would mean for you to actually have forgiveness of sins today, please talk to me afterwards, talk to one of our members, uh, reach out to Faith Family Church online, uh, but please don't go another day without knowing that your sins have been forgiven. Christian, I hope that you're encouraged that despite whatever you might be going through right now, everything will be all right in the end because your sins have been forgiven. Second application, are you growing? Are you seeing progress in your Christian life? Are you knowing God more and more? Are you overcoming sin more and more? If not, why not? Are you discouraged? Are you struggling with something? Are you just lazy? You know those simple things that will help you grow spiritually, but you just can't be bothered to do those. You can't be bothered to set aside a time where you can read God's word and pray and, and, and being with other believers isn't a high priority for you. Well, how do we grow? First of all, we get saved. We trust Christ. You can't really grow spiritually if you're not truly a believer, if you don't have the Holy Spirit of God living inside you because you've put your faith and trust in Christ. But once we become believers in Christ, how do we grow? We feast. We, we read God's Word. That's what it's saying there in verse 14. We need to have the Word of God abiding or living inside us. We also need to pray. Makes sense, right? How can your relationship with someone progress if you never communicate with them at all? We should get to know God through prayer. We should pour out our hearts to him in prayer. We should have a ministry of prayer. And we should pray for growth in our life. And we should go to church, not as some ritual that somehow you're doing God a favor by carving out some time on a Sunday morning to sit in some chairs quietly for a while, but you're here because you want to feed on God's Word. You want to remind your heart of what's important. You want to encourage others in their Christian life, and you want to be encouraged in your Christian life. And if that's your heart, then Christian community in a local church will help you grow. But let's be clear. Growth is not optional for the Christian. Did you know that you're actually commanded to grow? If you do a study throughout the Old and New Testaments, uh, God is constantly commanding his people to know him and love him more and more and to be stronger and more courageous. We don't grow in Christ to make God love us more. All right? God can't, if you're in Christ, God can't love you any more than he already does. In Christ, we are loved completely. We also don't grow in Christ so that we can be cro- proud of our accomplishment and look down on others. We grow because we love God. We grow to glorify God. Well, I started this sermon uh, thinking about coaches. Let's end this sermon thinking about coaches. As part of my extensive research uh, for this sermon, I rewatched two of the three greatest Indiana sports movies of all time. One was Hoosiers, of course, and the other was Newt Rockney All-American. I would have watched Rudy, too, but there's not really a locker room scene in it. It's more about Rudy getting that sack at the end of the game. Spoiler alert, everybody. But remember the locker room scenes in Hoosiers and Newt Rockney. Hoosiers is all about a hard-nosed basketball coach played by Gene Hackman who leads his tiny team from a small school in small-town Indiana to go on to win the state championship. And this is before they ruined Indiana basketball with the class system, so it actually meant something to be the state champion in Indiana back in the day. In Hoosiers, there's a final locker room scene before the big game, before they play South Bend Central for the state championship, where they, all the players are talking about who they want to win for. Let's win this for all the small schools who never had a chance to get here, says one player. I want to win for my dad, says another. Finally, a player says, let's win for Coach, who got us here. And they all nod their heads and they agree, they're going to win this game for coach. Newt Rockne, All-Americans, another great uh, sports film. And it's probably its most famous scene is when one of the star players, George Gipp, who is then played by the actor, Ronald Reagan, is on his deathbed. And as he's lying there in the hospital bed, his dying words to his coach, Newt Rockne, are these words. Rock, sometime when the team is up against it and the brakes are beating the boys... Tell them to go out there with all they got and win just one for the Gipper. In the movie, uh, years later after the Gipps' death, Notre Dame is getting beat by, of course, Army. And during halftime in the locker room, Coach Rockney recounts this story of, of George Gipps' deathbed words and tells them to win one for the Gipper. And the team is so motivated by the story that they go out and they beat Army in the second half. Well, The phrase, win one for the Gipper, became a famous sports slogan and, not surprisingly, became a favorite motto for all of Ronald Reagan's political campaigns. (laughs) The glory of God is so much more important than the outcome of a basketball game or a football game, or, for that matter, a political campaign. Christ has already won the victory for us. We just have to be faithful. The Bible often speaks about the Christian life as an athletic endeavor. Let's win this for our coach, for our King. Let's win this for our Heavenly Father, He who is from the beginning, He who strengthens us to overcome, He who forgave our sins. As a Christian, you have everything you need to grow and mature in your Christian walk. You can do this, so go out there and do it. Come on, let's go. You've got Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church.